Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we've got an awesome interview with Rob Southwell, who's the managing partner at Picture Partners Sydney. Rob is an accounting guru, former accounting executive of the year winner, and has a passion for property. We chat to Rob about how he helps his high net worth clients with structuring and asset selection. We talk about what's happening with capital growth in the market at the moment and where the opportunities for investors are likely to be. Here's Rob. Rob Southwell, thanks for joining us on Geared for Growth. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Now, can we just kick things off by giving uh, our listeners a bit of a background into who you are and what you do? Uh, so, uh, yeah, sure. I am uh, the managing partner for Picture Partners in Sydney. So we are a, I guess, a, a mid-tier or second-tier uh, chartered accounting and advisory business, um, part of the, the national association. So we're in uh, sort of six state, six locations around the country and about 1,200 partners and uh, 1,200 people, sorry, and uh, we service, we're really focused on the, the mid-market, um, which is, I guess is probably the largest sector in Australia and across a wide range of industries, so from tax accounting order to uh, mortgage broking, wealth accumulation, um, business advisory, um, uh, recovery, insolvency uh, advisory, so, you know, you name it, we do it. So yeah, awesome. Yeah, looking forward to to diving into to some of those, especially the wealth creation and the property stuff. To get us a sure. bit of get us a bit of dirt or a bit of background on you, Rob. What what sort of posters did you have on the bedroom wall growing up? <laughs> um, I got introduced to good old rock and roll at a young age, so I had bands like Van Halen, awesome, and um, you know um, Australian rock, Aussie Crawl, and ACDC, and um, and at work and yeah and then sort of graduated into the heavier stuff as I got older so I got into you know sort of the air tracks and the Metallicas and Guns N' Roses and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, getting a bit heavier. I actually found out um, <laughs> not that long ago that my parents went to an ACDC concert and I suddenly realised I think they're cooler than I am. <laughs> it's disappointing. That's <laughs> probably one of my biggest regrets in life that I never got to see them live. So. Yeah, yeah, it's an unfortunate one. So, Rob, how did you first get started in, in property and what was your first investment? Um, so, I've always um, always uh, been into property. i just really intrigued. I'm a, property always appeals to me. I'm, I'm one of these people that are constantly looking on domain and different properties just because I'm really interested in it. Um, my first property that my wife and I bought was in Erskineville back in 2000, just before the Sydney Olympics, and wow. it was actually a pretty good time to buy yeah. um, to us. Everyone thought it was going to die a very quick death after the Olympics, but it did the opposite, so I think we got a little bit lucky there. But um, but yeah, that was a, a, you know, one of those up-and-coming areas, um, and that was a two-bedroom duplex that we you know <laughs> scrimped and saved just to get enough to get the 20% deposit. Um, but yeah, that was our first investment. And you still hold that one today? Unfortunately not. Uh, okay. I, was gonna <laughs> I think say... you're going to come back to lessons you've learned. Oh um, yeah, right. I was just going to say, you've, you've probably had two really strong cycles on that one, but at least you got that, uh, that good first one in, what was it, 03 or thereabouts, it started to take off. Yeah, so those four years after we bought it, it you know, it did, did really well. I think we paid $360,000 for that, that place would be worth... One three now, I reckon. Yeah, wow, wow. <laughs> yeah, just a, it is. It's just a prime example of the 
power of that very simple concept of compounding. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway. Now, Rob, I want to sort of go back in time a little bit if we can. I mean, right now you're an executive who's the head of a multi-million dollar business. Um, but uh, back in the day, you were doing a Bachelor of Commerce at the University of Wollongong in the in the mid-90s. So can you chart sort of or track the, the, the progress of how you went from there to where you are now? Yeah, so... Um, I had done sort of two years full-time of a degree and I was getting a bit bored being around um, a group of people that knew everything and had done nothing. Um, <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so I, 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 just, I actually got a very prestigious job working for a one-man tax agent above the TAB at Ferry Meadow in Wollongong. <laughs> awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, that was my, that was my big move. Um, just, just getting some basic accounting and tax skills up and then... Um, uh, decided to get something a little bit more permanent, um, switched my last year of uni to part-time and got a full-time job. Um, got a cadetship with the Department of Education in Finance and that lasted three months. Realised that governments are probably not, wasn't the place I wanted to be and uh, landed in a, um, <clears throat> a chartered firm, a uh, smaller chartered firm, and that's when I just started to learn, you know, um, cut my teeth on... Um, you know, your basic accounting, tax, understanding how businesses work. Um, and then moved on to a larger firm uh, and got exposure to a lot of different industries um, and working across a lot of different areas. So I did, you know, accounting, I did tax, I did some um, did some audit work, did some, some corporate advisory, did some insolvency work. So I got a real exposure to a lot of different areas but also got exposed to a lot of different industries. Um, things like pubs and um, you know capital intensive businesses and a lot just you know was a yeah. really good experience just to get access and understand the, the the things that make or break these types of businesses and um, from there I landed where I the firm I am today where I am today uh, I've been with for it's coming up to 18 years this year so um, wow. and at the time it was a um, 30 person firm in a very small office in Martin Place um, with a very, very entrepreneurial group of partners, there's only four of them, but uh, went through about 10 years of organic growth year on year, probably 20, 25% a year, um, <clears throat> started, we you know got involved in starting our own businesses and building things out, so I got to experience sort of being on the other side of actually starting some businesses and growing them, splitting yeah. them out and learning the ins and outs of being a shareholder in a private business. Um, and, um, you know, and then we'd done, we, we had, had done a couple of mergers over that. We did a smaller one, which was a really good, I guess, lesson in how to do and not do a merger. And then two years ago, we did a very big merger with another firm, and now we are the size that we are today. So so it's um, it's been, even though I've been in the one place for for nearly 18 years, it's it's been a journey that, is always bringing something new and something challenging. So. Yeah, awesome. And and clearly, like you're a you're a businessman. You're you're an accountant. You're a tax expert. Um, but clearly, you maintain a passion for property. People may recognise you as a, a regular guest on Your Empire with Chris Gray, one of our uh, other esteemed podcast guests. Is, is that sort of passion for property uh, the result of your own portfolio, or is it to do, I guess, with the power that that property has for your business owners and the individuals that you look after? Um, I think the primary driver was really working out what type of investment suited my personality best. <laughs> right. Um, in the sense that I have 
dabbled in the shares. I started buying shares when I was younger and um, there's a bit of a joke in our house that my first portfolio of shares, I had to sell my Coca-Cola shares to buy my wife's engagement ring. <laughs> right. um, Coca-Cola shares probably did better, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that's the best investment and you, you've, you've ruined all no, chance no, of romance no, there, Rob. You know, if my wife's <laughs> listening, no, that was the best investment I could ever make. Um, no. <laughs> um, so I, I had dabbled in... Um, you know, understanding, uh, you know, d investing in general. Um, but I think probably in the last six or eight years, I realized that the way I like to invest and from a discipline perspective, and uh, and it's probably come about more so just being a little bit more patient, that property is probably the right style of investment for me, for to, to work for me over the longer term. Yep. Um, and I also have a real passion for property, you know, shares and things that, you know, I have shares in my, my, my self-managed super fund, but the property, I really enjoy touching and feeling it and, and seeing it. And, you know, I, I you know, viscerally is a lot more um, uh, in, intriguing for me as well. So, yeah. so probably in the last sort of, over the last 15 years, property, I've realized not, probably more so, in the, as I said, the last six or eight years, the property's more suited to how I are better invest to be better investing over the longer term. So, yep. you know, you look at graphs all the time, and I think the jury's out what performs better over twenty years: shares or property. And a share guy will say shares, and a property guy will say property. But I think it's probably much for muchness. Really, it really comes for me. It comes down to what works for me. So, yeah, personal preference. And as you say, it's nice to be able to touch something. I think one of the values with with property as well is it's it's not as not as sort of liquid as, as shares. I got into it a little bit myself and suddenly found because of my personality I was going to have to be a day trader. Um, property yeah, exactly, exactly. teaches you a lot more you know, patience. If you were seeing how much a brick of your property was worth day in day out on the on, on a market, you'd be you'd have a very different attitude to property. So there you know and um, having experienced I, I'm from an advisory perspective, most things that I've ever recommended, I've actually done it myself. So, you know, from a, uh, uh, you know, an LBA, a, a limited borrowing arrangement with self-managed super funds, I've done that. You know, I've, I've you know, recommending things to people. I've worked with those people. I, I'm very, I want to, I want to get involved and try and see how it works. So, I, so for me, it's something that I'm always, I've never really just sort of had an opinion about. I've gone and tried it and tested it myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, and sometimes you learn lessons the expensive way, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, you get to pass it on to your clients and they get the benefit of that, I guess. Exactly, so exactly. And and the other thing that I've learned from, I guess, the benefit of having been in the role that I have and working with high net wealth clients is probably really coming back to <clears throat> one of the early fundamentals, which I often got presented with, uh, Warren Buffett, power of com um, compounding interest, Yep. is how powerful patience and time is. Yeah. Um, and and you know um, so I think it's really important to to have a longer term goal and and stick to it, but just be patient. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, uh, a lot of people are looking for those those property secrets with with the hotspots and you know all that sort of stuff. But one of the biggest I think secrets is just be patient. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, um, there's a bit of a joke. I tend to buy in uh, thirty year hotspots. 
Right. You know, <laughs> in properties, property areas that have been hotspots for 30 years. Kind yeah. Of. yeah. So, so getting back to the advisory and, and you mentioned your high net worth individuals, I guess this podcast is geared to the, to the average investor that, that may not have access to some of the advisory services that, that firms like yourself and experts like yourself provide. Can you give us a bit of yeah. a fly on the wall sort of experience? What, what, what firms like pitches do for, 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 those, um, for those individuals? So um, at a more, um, I guess, nerdy accounting level, uh, for want of a better word, the, <laughs> the structuring aspect to it, you know, what, what we tend to focus on first is what are you trying to achieve? Um, so what are the longer term plans? Because there's no point giving advice if you don't know what you're trying to achieve. Um, and what we do a lot, particularly with our clients, is get the structuring piece right. So it, in understanding their needs, we can determine whether or whether they should be holding something in their own name, which is often done for a high income earner from a negative gearing aspect, or do we do it through a trust because you've got <clears throat> asset protection issues or you know you might have enough assets in your own name so there's no real tax benefit for it or you're holding something just for passive income yep. um, through to self-managed super funds, which is a great, you know, people often talk about, I want, don't want to pay any tax, but don't pay attention that superannuation in certain circumstances the only place you can get zero tax yeah so it's about trying to understand what they're trying to do but that comes you know for self-managed super fund comes with a downside of um, restriction and access so that's why understanding what the client wants to do is really important um, so there's there's that aspect and we do do a lot of that um, and then there's the other side of it which is um, through our contacts um, and our referral sources is helping clients find assets, um, you know, from commercial property, for example, working with one of our partners who can find, a, you know, a petrol station that can give a client a yield that they wouldn't otherwise get somewhere else or yep. um, you know, access to property syndicates, which are, you know, quite usually harder to access um, or, uh, um, you know, uh, looking at, um, development opportunities and how to structure them and how to minimise their risk and those types of things. So it, it's really twofold. I guess the, the more vanilla stuff is to get get the, what we call get the buckets right, put everything in the right buckets. Yep. Um, but the second aspect is understanding what they can do and then using our contacts and networks to help them try and find the right assets. I guess a lot of property investors, they think first about the type of property they're going to buy or the area that they're going to, to buy. How important is getting that structure right from the beginning from like a, an asset uh, protection point of view and, and the end result with, with taxation? How, how, how different can the result be based on the structuring? Oh, um, dramatic. Um, so you can be anywhere from, um, you know, if you're doing maybe a mixed development type thing, you could be paying top marginal rate of 40, 48%, 49% down to, you know, zero in a, a super fund in um, <clears throat> in accumulation phase in certain circumstances. So there's, you know, that, that decision is huge and we often see clients coming to us have got the wrong advice or got no advice and end up in that situation. I think that has a dramatic impact. I guess I have to overlay that with, I often challenge clients on why they're selling assets. Right. <laughs> Uh, particularly for passive investors, I have clients ask me that they're thinking about selling an asset because it's gone up, um, you know, and there's a bit of an unrealized gain there. And I often question why they want to do that, knowing that they'll probably be back in six months' time going, I want to buy another property. <laughs> yeah. and, and not fully appreciating that 
in most circumstances, I use the rule of 30, 30%, which is you're probably going to pay 25% on your capital gains tax. And then, you know, if you, you end up going again, there's another 5 to 7% to get back into that property as well, plus selling costs. So, you know, the tax aspect of it is a huge piece. Um, um, I think probably the more important thing, though, that I tell clients is not to focus so much on the, is to, I guess, to pay closer attention to the numbers. Uh, first and foremost, yeah. and for example, most of my properties, the, the the location is the the attraction. Once you get <clears throat> once you get comfortable with the location, it's about doing the numbers and make sure they work for you. Um, and so by that I mean, can what is realistic in terms of funding the property yeah. from a cash flow perspective? Quite often they're negatively geared. Um, and the second aspect is, what are your expectations around growth? And what is it going to look like over the next five or ten years? And quite often, you know, to say, oh, I think I'll hold it for five years and see what it does. And they say, well, what happens if it goes up, you know, five or ten percent for two years and then does nothing? You know, it's not yeah. <laughs> so it's about managing people's expectations. How, how they're going to uh, get uh, yeah, itchy fingers <laughs> wanting to, to yeah, lock, yeah. lock in that profit and then pay a lot of tax to go and have another go at something similar. Exactly. And then and rather than well, I actually want to do this a couple of times over on the next next 10 years. Well, it's about how do you use the equity that you've accumulated to get into another property without having necessarily having to realise realize the asset. Yeah. You, know. you mentioned um, that areas are an important consideration for you, and I know you've had a lot of exposure with, uh, with funds management. When it comes to, to property, how, how are the experts in the top end of town doing their sort of due diligence on, on areas and the numbers and the property types and that sort of thing? Um, I think it really depends. You know, um, the residential side of it is, is probably a little less volatile. Um, so you're tending, tending to look at long-term demographics, things like infrastructure projects coming into the area. Um, yeah. If it's an established area, what are the, I guess, general planning restrictions around an area, i.e. if it's fully built out, what, you know, if, if, the, if there's a, an allowance for half of those buildings to, to be converted into 30-storey buildings, you might have a bit of an issue. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, I guess it's just doing some research around what are the general demographics of the area. Um, and if nothing's going to change, that you've, you're understanding what you're buying versus, you know, say a lot of areas up and northwest of getting rail links and, <clears throat> excuse me, those, those types of things coming in which can really make a difference um, to the value of a property longer term. Um, versus a commercial property, which becomes probably a bit more of an analytical exercise. Yep. So that, that then starts to focus on, if you're looking at commercial properties, um, you're looking at, what are the major tenants? What's the profile of the tenants? What's the, you know, what's the, the the lease terms, the unexpired lease terms on those properties? You know, you're looking at you're really focusing on the yield. Yes. Um, and um, and so there's the, it's a it's a very different aspect. You're looking at the at, at, I guess different drivers around that. So it's more around the tenant, the general area, um, and um, you know what is the what is the risk of not being getting paid any rent, basically? Yeah. Um, so, you know, but I think sometimes people do overlook the numbers, particularly for new investors. Yeah. But so yeah, it really comes down to, and then, and I think the other aspect, particularly a commercial or larger residential, is what's what's the development opportunity with it. You. you um, 
You um just getting onto the the infrastructure projects you were talking about. You've been quoted in a few articles I've, I've seen uh, about that. So obviously you're practicing what you pre- preach there. You, you you've got your 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 finger pretty well on the pulse on on what's happening there and across real estate. And I, I know that your business is is broader than that. Is that all just sort of par for the course for for yourself as in your position? You're needing to sort of stay abreast of of what's happening, you know, across the state and across Australia. Yeah, I, I have an interest in it. I mean, <laughs> I have a I have an interest in macroeconomics, particularly from a New South Wales perspective, because that's where, where obviously where I live and um, the majority of our clients are located, uh, because it does have an impact on our business um, uh, broadly. But also, I, I kind of tend to correlate the broader macroeconomic conditions to particularly with property, as to my thoughts around long-term growth rates. Um, you know, again, your point, infrastructure spending, those types of things. So I I often laugh when, you know, I, sh- I have to watch my words, but, you know, economists are, are making comment about property markets um, because in Australia, property markets are pretty diverse. And my first question to them is when they say that, you know, property is going to dive in value. Do you have you sold your house? And they say no. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so for me, it's it's normally about um, uh, correlating the macroeconomic conditions, both from running a business, but also as a property investor, to my own thoughts on um, what's happening. You know, uh, particularly with property. Um, you know, I think people often overlook one. Of, I think one of the biggest drivers for property growth, particularly in places like New South Wales and Victoria, is immigration. Um, and population growth Um, and if you look at those numbers over the last couple of years 85% of if you ignore interstate migration is going 85% of it is going into New South Wales and Victoria right you know so I'm very much a macro person when it comes to supply and demand and that's been played out in the property market results really quite obviously yeah exactly yeah so you look at places like Brisbane I guess the net they've been recipients of interstate migration from people from you know coming from New South Wales or Victoria moving into those states but they haven't been a massive recipient of immigration so people moving from overseas they're all tend to land in New South Wales and Victoria Um, so so that's why I have an interest in some of these broader macroeconomic um, factors and conditions and they usually will be a precursor I find um, to, to do that. The other big one that I look at quite often is um, supply, demand, particularly around new builds, um, uh, potential, you know, um, development applications, yep. new housing applications. And, yep. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a, it's a big thing and I think a lot of people read what they need to read out of it depending on what article they're writing that day. So. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess it's fair to say that we've we've reached the the peak of the market um, in in most sort of markets around Australia, most capital cities. I know there are some obvious examples like like Hobart. What's your sort of pr- prediction for for the property market uh, in the next little while? And 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 what what what's happening with business conditions as well? I know that obviously wages growth is is pretty slow. We've been hearing a little bit about that in the news. How, how does that sort of tie in to to the, to the market as well? Um, I think. They're actually, I'll, I guess I'll start with the business conditions because I think they're actually going to impact positively on pricing. Right. Um, the, you know, and I guess I can only really comment on New South Wales because that's the area I'm closest to. I I think the business conditions in New South Wales, 
have probably been the strongest in my since I've been working. So I think they're probably the strongest you've seen in, you know, definitely post GFC, but probably in the last 20 years, I think. Wow. Um, uh, in the sense that you've got, uh, I guess New South Wales is a very property slash infrastructure driven economy. Uh, and then probably from a business perspective, financial services um, focused. And I think all of those areas are booming at the moment. Um, we just did a, we do a publish a, a deal makers, <coughs> excuse me, a deal makers um, report annually, which talks about M and A activity in the mid tier space, which represents about seventy seven percent of the whole market. Right. And uh, it's it's really really come up in the last twelve months, and the expectation is that it was going to continue to grow. So that gives you an indication of business confidence um, is quite high. You know, I read a report recently that said that New South Wales government spending a million dollars a a billion dollars a month on infrastructure at the moment. Wow. And the the pipeline for that is pretty long. When you think about things like the metro tunnel, building yes. the tunnel under the harbour is going to take another seven or eight years to do. Um, so all of those things create um, job growth. They have a a big injection into the private sector because they're all, you know, working on these jobs and then you're getting a lot of activity. You're getting, you know, places like Japan are very active. So, you know, the when you when and that's before you look internationally. So you go internationally and the Japanese government have encouraged industry to, they're not getting growth in Japan, so they're encouraging people to invest offshore. A lot of that's coming to Australia. Um, you know, they're looking for assets and, and businesses and things to invest in. So, um, you know, I actually think, um, and then you look at the basic factors. We've got low inflation, um, relatively low unemployment. We've got record low interest rates. Um, and we're starting to get, the growth is starting to improve, you know. So we've had low, sort of low twos on, on average over the last few years of growth. Yep. That's still pretty good, <laughs> yeah. And it's it's picking up, you know. And considering long term averages, is, they like to predict three, three and a half. So I actually am quite optimistic about the next couple of years, particularly in New South Wales. Um, the, the 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 wage growth is usually the last thing to go. So what you're seeing is the businesses are growing. Um, I think last month they said that new wage, new um, employment, jobs growth has been really high. So. My experience tells me that if people are looking for for new <laughs> for new people, and they're not getting them, you're starting to get you'll get the wage growth. Yes. I think it's probably slower to then occur than than people think. Um, but you know, we had the RBA governor in our office before Christmas, and he said that will come, and I, I tend to agree with him. So um, I actually am pretty bullish about yeah. the economy in general. So that's that's and interesting. Like her. Is, is interesting as well. I was speaking to our guys in Perth office and they say, you know, that the whole, um, in you know, liquidations and, you know, the whole, the, the last couple of years, which has been, been dire, business is going under, a lot of that's starting to dry up now. So you're starting to see, I guess, green shoots of growth and a bit of a shift in economies like Perth, which is, pro they're probably hurting the most at the moment. Yes. So even, even those places are starting to see little signs of of uh, new growth coming through. Yeah, interesting. And, and are, you, are you thinking that that's likely to, to keep pushing the market higher or do you think that, you know, the values have, um, have maybe sort of gone a little bit in advance of where they will and we'll have a little period of, of, of stagnation or do you just think those underlying oh, think fundamentals will, will keep pushing forward? 
I don't think we're going to get double-digit growth like we have for the last few years. But um, you know that you look at um, the last two ten-year periods. Um, so, so you go from ninety mid nineties to the mid two thousands. I think Sydney did more than double in that time. In the last ten years, it's slightly less than double. So when you average it out, that's seven percent a year, give or take. But when you you look at both of those periods, probably seventy percent of that growth happened in five years. Yeah, right. In both of those periods, so it's it's you know starting to show periods of really accelerated growth, and then it sort of flattens out. So I I I think that I I definitely don't see you know Sydney Metro area real estate dying. You yes. know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's people thinking that the our senders, sorry, for want of a better word, is going to drop out of the market. Are going to be um, renting for a long time, um, but um, you know, I I don't I don't think that sort of long term averages for the next year or two is out of the question. Yeah. So I, um, I, I particularly, guess. I, sorry, I let you finish. So particularly if you bought in the right areas, I mean, you look at Sydney. There's some areas that are just getting over overpopulated with new developments that aren't being bought, so they're not going to go anywhere or go backwards, but. If you've bought in, like I said, thirty-year hotspots, <laughs> there's just no, there's no supply. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I don't think, I, I definitely don't think we're going to get double-digit growth, but I think that you know, five to seven percent is is not unrealistic. I, I guess so, people are just going to need to be a little bit more creative. You know, APRA's caused some headaches with with investors looking at interest only with with high leverage and you know with with some of the the capital cities being being what we think might be the the peak in the in the near term are you are you sort of seeing with, with any of your clients that they're they're moving away from property for any of those reasons or looking to say regionals over capital cities um no i think they're probably slowing down a bit right um so the confidence there to do purchases are um the, the, so, and I think this is what's happening in the market in general. There's not that sense of urgency, which is probably the difference between five to seven percent of year growth versus twelve to fifteen. You know? mm-hmm. um, you, you're getting people that are buying stuff, um, but it, yeah. So that there's definitely a, a little bit of a a lot more consideration that's happening before they're buying property. Um, but I think the longer term more experienced investors if they see a good asset they're buying it yes i think what what we're seeing though is that um the banks particularly it just it's just taking longer to get the money out of them you know they're still lending the banks aren't closed as some people have made out but they just <laughs> yeah. You know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's closer than ever now. So yeah, and the shareholders are still going to be wanting their returns, so they're they're gonna they're gonna have to be lending somewhere somehow. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, I mean, you saw that in the interest rates. You know, September last year, they pushed the rates up by 50, 60 basis points, and straight after Christmas, they all come down by the same amount because they just they didn't need new loans. Mm. <laughs> they're getting squeezed by APRO not to lend so much, but. Which has really curbed, I guess, the investing lending, but they've they still need to grow. So exactly, getting back to your sort of high net worth individuals, I'm just interesting uh, interested in asking: Is there something that typically that they're they're doing better than the average person in in investing, or or is there something about their their risk appetite or their planning? Is there anything that you sort of see in common with people that obviously they have great advisors, but um, you know you can lead a a, 
a horse to water, of course. Is there something that they do do well that they have in common? Um, oh, I think there's a couple of aspects there. Usually, they're quite discerning, so they will probably say no to more things than they say yes to. Right. Uh, particularly, so the assets, I think generally the numbers have to work if the numbers don't work they don't look at it if the numbers work and they're comfortable with the you know the demo demographics of the area or that you know that you know if it's, it's got some peculiar peculiar aspect to it you know they're comfortable with that um so i think they're probably having done more of it they're probably more discerning or they have a model that works for them so yeah. they tend to stick to that i think the second thing is that they have probably a much longer term um, view, and I'm talking 10, 15, 20 year view. I yeah. think quite often people who invest in property, they're, they're, you know, they say with shares you should be at least two years out. I think with property you need to be five, at minimum a five year plus kind of horizon. Yeah. Um, and so they tend to be investing for a longer term. Um, I think, yeah, that they actually, uh, I think from a a risk perspective, they understand how to manage the risk, so they'll tend to have probably a better buffer. Um, right. So they, you know, even though they might still be borrowing their maximum LVR, they have um, funds or equity available at their disposal so that if something, you know, they have a bump in the road, they can ride it out without having to sell the asset under distress. Yeah, so they never box themselves into a position where they have to let go of an asset which, which might be costing them in the short term, but over the long term, it's actually a really good thing to hold on to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, and then for me, that's one of my biggest things if, you know, is, is, is having a buffer and knowing, well, predicting and, and kind of road testing your own portfolio to say, well, what happens if this happened or what happens, if, how are you going to deal with it? Um, and... Um, yeah, I, I guess that's what it is. I mean, it's the real boring stuff. It's 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 being a little bit risk averse. It's being really discerning. You know, the old Kenny Rogers song, gonna know when to hold them and when to fold them. <laughs> yeah, good advice. You know, some, sometimes the, the hands you fold are just as important as the hands you win. Yep. Um, so it's saying no to things um, when you know that, they, you know, using your head rather than your heart. Um, yeah, and, and, and being smart about managing the risks um, and being very patient. I guess there's there's two things that have come up that I, I didn't expect in this interview so far. One of them's Kenny Rogers, of course. Um, <laughs> the other being the RBA governor come into your office. Um, I mean, the most famous we person we get in our office is probably the the postman. But it just it showcases why I love to interview people such as yourself, um, Rob. You've just got that that access to those um, those those upper echelon decision makers, which leads leads into my next question, and 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 that's sort of what the what do you think the next federal election um, will will have as an influence on, on the property market? Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a really important um, it's a, a pretty important election. I think if we're you know we remain with the incumbent government, um, I don't think you might see some tweaks to around. For I think the biggest risk is tax policy. Mm -hmm. um, Superannuation you know, is, is, is tweaked every 10 minutes in, in Canberra, at least in <laughs> modelling. Yeah, and it's, you know, I think, you know, and, and we invite, we advise a lot of clients that have self-managed super and they, 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 they get slammed a lot, you know, um, yeah. from changes all the time and it's, it's a system designed to make people self-reliant in retirement. <laughs> yes. So I, I think some stability around that is, is important. 
I think from a property, you know, negative gearing is continually brought up by the opposition. I think if they were to get in and um, actually being able to enact some of their changes, I think it will have a short-term negative impact on property. Yep. Um, you know, some <laughs> and and some associated property businesses. I don't think it's a great thing. Um, uh, my analysis and commentary on this, when looking at what are the big factors that affect property growth, yeah, negative gearing is 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 probably a small contributor, but we've had negative growth for 30 years. Yes. So, <laughs> um, sorry, negative gearing, gearing for yeah. 30 years. For 30 years, and and you know, people buy borrow money to buy all sorts of assets as well. So, I think. Um, Using negative gearing to change housing affordability is probably a bit fraught with danger. Yes. Um, so the housing affordability issue is is probably the biggest issue. Um, if you break it down, and the probably the biggest impact on that is release of land. Um, yeah. And and how they go about releasing um, land or changing zonings to allow further further properties to be built, but be it medium high density or um, allowing development further out. But Sydney is a funny location, particularly because we're we've got national parks to the north and the south, we've got mountains to the to the west and an ocean to the east. So there's only <laughs> only so much land to build houses. It's sort so. of a property investor's dream from a supply point of view, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and and we've got we've got nearly four hundred thousand people coming here every year, you know, like into Australia. Yeah. So. Um, and they have to go somewhere, so it's um, it's a it's a really hard one. But I don't think, in terms of longer term, um, longer term um, real reform, that you're going to make a dent in housing affordability by removing a tax policy. Because yeah. most people I speak to who have um, property investment would continue to invest in property even if the tax benefits weren't there. Yeah, so. exactly. So that sort of ruins some of the, the arguments around uh, negative gearing and, and what that's going to do to housing affordability. But And I guess exactly. I, I'm, I'm interested in, in your view on how important property is to the overall Australian economy. I mean, there's a lot of people that are they're talking about housing affordability as their sort of main focal point, but a lot of people have exposure to, to property they might not own directly, but through super funds and, and that sort of thing. What, what role does property play in, in in the economy in Australia? Well, I, you know, um, looking at, say, the Victoria, the last Victorian and um, New South Wales um, budget announcements, I mean, over 50% of the government's revenue was coming from property. Mm. Um, you know, and in New South Wales, New South Wales uh, books have been better than they ever been, and they're using that to build this infrastructure, which is, you know, which is really driving some of the growth in the state. Um, as well, so you know, when you look at it in that regard, it's it's really important and it's pretty vital to the economy. Um, and I think Australia generally are probably a, a, a property-led um, country. Yes. Putting aside some of the major industries, obviously, you know, um, I think you know, um, inbound um, tourism, you know, obviously resourcing professional services, all those types of things. So if we, particularly on the East Coast, we are very focused on people-driven businesses. So, you know, IT businesses, you know, tech businesses, professional services, they all require, they're all built on having a large pool of people and all those people need to live somewhere. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so and we are very reliant on those, you know, um, people, people-centric businesses. So, um, and, and we are getting a lot of interest 
from foreign people for property, both commercial and residential. So um, I think it is pretty important. Um, but at the end of the day, that doesn't drive the economy. You know, it's not our biggest, um, it's not our biggest sector of the economy. Yep. Um, but it does have a big impact, particularly at a government level and their ability to, you know, build schools and rail projects and hospitals and all those types of exactly. things. Exactly, so. all the stuff that we, uh, all the stuff that we need to to live our lives. Um, a bit yeah. of a, a bit of a cliched question, I guess, Rob. But um, I, I have to ask it. What are you thinking in terms of, of areas for capital growth opportunities in the, in the next uh, couple of years? Obviously, you mentioned we, we're probably looking at single digit growth in Sydney, but there are other areas that you have your eye on that where you think that the you know the fundamentals are good from a from an infrastructure and housing starts and a supply sort of point of view. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I. I I'd probably, given that I've kind of taken my foot off the gas personally from an investment perspective, um, I still think some of the prime areas around um, New South Wales are still worthy. Um, the trouble with those is that, you know, a lot of that stuff now, you know, if you're looking at eastern beaches, um, inner city areas like Rushcutters Bay, and there's a lot of change happening around the Potts Point Kings Cross area. Yep. Um, and, and actually trying to find areas that still go through periods of change. And there still are plenty of those areas to, to, to pinpoint. Um, I think there's still some areas of the inner west that are still have ways to go in terms of future growth. Um, you know, I refer back to my first place in Erskineville. I remember my parents, I tell my parents I bought a house in Erskineville and Erskineville was like, why are you buying there? And that was their expectation of, you know, their memory of that area when they were growing up around there. But... Um, you know, so I still think that there are some good opportunities in, um, you've just got to do your research or employ the services of an expert, expert to help you find those. Yep. Um, I think that the tricky part is, particularly for new builds off the plan, they are, I think they're overpricing them at the moment. Yes. So, you know, I have, I'm probably 50% old stock, 50% off the plan, and I've said no to a lot in the last 12 months because the pricing is just too bullish. Yep. Um, and they're stealing your first couple of years of growth. Um, out of out of New South Wales, um, I can't. I'm not really an expert. I can't. You know, I look at some some of the inner city, um, sort of the the inside of that 10k circle down in Melbourne. Probably more focused on on houses. Yes. So your semis and freestanding houses. You know, your Hawthorns, your Carlton areas. I think are still uh, very attractive for longer term. Um, I think Melbourne's might be suffering from a, a saturation of medium density, high density apartments. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good opportunity. And then you're looking at areas like Hobart. So a colleague of mine got his timing spot on and <laughs> started luck, buying stuff in uh, properties in Hobart and around Tasmania two, two, three years ago. Um, I still come back to long-term fundamentals though. I think when the market cools down a bit, um, you have to have a real shift in fundamentals so you need people to so I think that's driving there's a little bit of Victorian lifestyle assets purchased there I think there's people moving down there for um, uh, you know a sea change but you need the industry to support it longer term so I I don't think I'd be jumping on Hobart right now yep um, I think that's probably probably had a, you know if you look at the last 10 years I think it's gone up in 45% and 27% of that, half of that happened in the last 18 months, two years. Yeah. So, 
you know, and I, so that often worries me. Um, and when you look at the longer term rates, it's been quite anemic. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I always advise people to steer clear of coastal areas. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've, I've spoken to many clients with sand between their toes and told them not to buy that holiday house. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've got to you've got to bring it back to fundamentals. Um, what's the era historically done? What's the asset, the median? What's the assets done best around the median house price? Yep. Um, what are the fundamentals? Even though it sounds expensive compared to other assets, it's probably still going to do better over the longer term. Yeah, and a lot of those lifestyle destinations, there's um, you know there's a lot of people that are that are moving there as a sea change or retirees and not necessarily driving that economy. So so that's something to be worried exactly. of as well. Yeah, and you you need to be in areas that have multi uh, you know multi industry um, sectors that are driving the economy. I mean, I think you've seen that with the smaller towns that are on the periphery of all the resources boom. As soon as the resources boom stopped, the you know some some people have been absolutely smashed from a real estate perspective doing exactly. that. So you got to be really really careful. Like I said, you got to pick the areas that have done well for the last thirty years and. <laughs> You know, as I said to someone, there's no such. At whatever time did you buy a property? And you go, oh my god, that was so cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In hindsight, it's always cheap, but at the time you buy it, so you got to stick to fundamentals. I think you just wait long enough, and it'll definitely be cheap. Now, Rob, yeah. if um, if people are interested in getting in touch with you, is there an easy way to do that? Yeah, of course. Um, probably the easiest way is uh, to email me, and it's um, Rob Southwell at pitcher, P-I-T-C-H-E-R dot com dot A-U and I'd be happy to uh, to talk to people. Awesome. And I very much appreciate your, your time, Rob. I, I guess I wanted to ask just in, in closing if there's one piece of advice that you could impart. Uh, I know you've, you've given us a lot of gems already, but if you can think of one, <laughs> what would that be? Uh, it was the first, first partner mentor I ever had. Um, he said to me, um, if you if you thought it was a good asset and it is a good asset, whatever you do, don't sell it. Right. And uh, <laughs> find other ways to use the equity in it, but by by all means, do not sell it if you absolutely do not have to. Yeah. So. Awesome advice, or at least wait until you're in your super funds in pension mode or whatever you need to <laughs> need to do to minimise that tax. Well, exactly. well, Rob, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for your time and uh, yeah, re- re- really enjoyed the interview and uh, yeah, appreciate you coming on. No, thanks very much, Mike. Cheers.